crumb bum. You looked me right in the eye and lied to me. Marge, this is the God's truth. I burned the mural, but I did not burn Skinner's car. I just saw you. Get him out of here, Chief. Yes, ma'am. My wife and I like watching that Oz show on HBO. Uh, is prison really like that? Wouldn't know. We only had basic cable. Ouch. Five hours to dawn, and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of sticks. And you know, you know, you're so fucking clean and righteous, man. You said, I, I, I got demons clawing at my ass. The streets I was selling dope, as bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill the cop! Fuck you, Governor. And what is your problem, man? I'm just fucking up. I wish I could, man. I got potatoes to peel. Yeah, they should give you a phone number and an address. Word. Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah, thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring everything down to the level of a goat. Titties and humping. Sex offender. Shit all over, man. It's not normal. I am black. I am a Muslim and I am a man. And sometimes those two things, they won't. It's about the whole horrid judicial system. everybody and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thomason, and it's great to have you all back with me today as we are going to be looking at episode 3 of series 2, Great Men. Written once again by Tom Fontana with a teleplay by Fontana and Sean Jablonski, the episode was directed by guest director Bob Balaban, the first in a number of guest directors on the show in this second series. Born August 16th, 1945 in Chicago, Illinois, Bob was destined for a career in the arts from a young age. His mother, an actress who performed under the name Eleanor Barry, was married to his father, Elmer Balaban, who owned several movie theatres and along with Bob's uncle Harry, formed the Balaban and Katz Theatre Circuit, and operated the Chicago Theatre which opened in 1921, as well as the Uptown Theatre which opened in 1925. Bob's father and uncle formed the H&E Corporation, which owned movie theatres including Chicago's Esquire, as well as a number of television stations and cable television franchises. Bob's uncle, Barney Balaban, was the president of Paramount Pictures from 1936 to 1964, and also famously attended the Waldorf Conference in 1946, in which the blacklist against communists was implemented. His father, Elmer, is also considered a pioneer in the television field after being involved in an early version of pay TV, which involved using a set-top box that accepted coins in order to operate. Bob attended Colgate University in Hamilton, New York, which to the best of my knowledge doesn't have anything to do with the popular brand of toothpaste, before transferring to New York University and also studied drama at the HB Studio in New York, the same college where George Morphogen, aka Bob Ribado, taught. Bob's first forays into acting included the role of Linus in the off-Broadway production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and one of his earliest film roles came in 1969's Oscar winner Midnight Cowboy, where he played a small role of a young student. Through the 1970s, Bob continued to take small roles on television, including an episode of Room 222, as well as in films such as Catch-22 in 1970, Bank Shot in 1974, and Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977. In the 1980s, as well as continuing to act, Bob also began to write and direct for television, including episodes of Tales from the Dark Side and Amazing Stories, another Spielberg project that was shown on NBC. In the 1990s, Bob also added the role of producer to his repertoire, producing The Last Good Time in 1994 and serving as executive producer in 1997 for the film The Definite Maybe. 
holding a rating of 8.3 on IMDb, the highest for Series 2 so far. This episode was originally broadcast on July 27th, 1998, a day which saw Fiji make an amendment to their constitution which barred non-natives from top posts of government. President Clinton held a town meeting in Albuquerque, New Mexico on the future of social security, and Monica Lewinsky was interviewed for five hours by prosecutors in New York in connection to some job that she did at the White House in 1995 and 1996, as well as some sexual relations she may have had at the time. So with all that out of the way, let's find out which men are great and which ones aren't. is coming, y'all, into the millennium. A lot of lists being printed about who's the greatest person of the past thousand years. By great, they mean who had the most impact. Einstein, Edison, Freud. I can tell you one thing for sure. <laughs> My name won't be on that list. <laughs> Neither will anyone else's here now. So Augustus kicks things off and he seems to be having a bit of a premature new millennium party in his glass box. He says that the end of the century is coming and that lists of the greatest people to live are being printed. And he mentions some folks that are likely to be on those lists, including Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison and Zygmunt Freud. And he finishes by saying that the inmates of Oz are definitely not going to be on anybody's list of great people. We come into the episode proper by seeing Miguel finishing up a phone call and he heads out into the main part of M-City passing the Muslims, conducting their prayers, and he does an arm gesture like he's a magician towards one of them, which, while quite a tad disrespectful, was quite funny. He goes over to Rebida, who sat at a table just staring at a tower of playing cards that he's built. It's actually quite impressive. It looks quite structurally strong. Miguel tells him that he has a piece of information that even Rebida doesn't know. Miguel says that it's about Leo and his daughter, but Rebida already knows about her being raped and in the hospital, and Miguel can't believe that he knows that and asks him how, and Rebido just gives him a little shrug of the shoulders as if to say, meh, I got my words. Miguel then says that he definitely knows something that Rebido doesn't, and that is the identity of the rapist. Rebido asks Miguel how he knows who did it, Miguel saying that he just got off the phone with them, and he walks away. Strange thing that I noticed in this scene is that Miguel's facial scar seems to have miraculously healed since the last episode. We haven't had a long passage of time since episode 2, so this is likely just an error. As Miguel leaves, we see that Richie Hanlon has been eavesdropping on the conversation, and he heads to see Ray in his office. Ray is going to town on a cigarette, and I think that's the first time we've seen Ray smoking in the series so far. And he's also wearing a much better fitting hoodie this week. Ray seems surprised to see Richie, so presumably Hanlon is not a man of faith, and Ray asks him what's up. Richie starts off by saying that he loves to take it in the ass, which is quite the icebreaker if ever there was one, and says that he knows that a lot of people may see that as perverse, but it's his choice and says fuck them. Ray asks him where he is going with his point, and Richie then mentions about rape, and Ray questions if he has been raped. Richie says that he has, but that isn't the reason that he is there, but that he has information on a different rape. So while he only has very limited screen time, in fact I don't think we see him again in this episode, Richie Hanlon shows that there is still some honour amongst some of the inmates. Richie here is played by Jordan Lage, who prior to Oz had a number of small roles in film and TV, and also appeared in theatre productions of The Old Neighbourhood in 1997, Our Town in 1998, and is also a founding member of the Atlantic Theatre Company's ensemble. We go to Leo's office where Ray is waiting with Sister Pete. Ray finds out that Sister Pete knew about the rape already and asks why she didn't tell him, but Pete says that Leo told her not to, which makes me wonder if Ray is a bit of a gossip after he's held confession. Leo enters and Ray tells him that he needs to speak to him about Leo's daughter Ardith. Leo looks at him with a stare and you get a feeling that Leo's gone completely cold even at the mere mention of his daughter's name. Cut to Leo storming into an interview room along with Ray and a guard, where Miguel has been made to wait. Leo says that Miguel is going to tell him everything that he knows, but Miguel plays dumb, saying, about what? 
Leo demands Miguel tell him about his daughter, and Miguel just says, your daughter was raped and beaten, and that Leo took it out on him. Leo asks him who raped his daughter, but Miguel says that he isn't telling him anything because Leo has all the power and that he thinks he can just shit on people and get away with it. But it's not going to happen this time and Leo can go fuck himself. Ray cuts in, seemingly trying to get something worthwhile out of Miguel and taking the more diplomatic approach and just asks him to tell Leo what he knows about his daughter. Miguel just says that she's a lousy lay. With that, Leo takes off his jacket and throws it over the chair and you know that he means business now and something is about to go down. He tells the guard to chain him up and moves Ray towards the door, saying, we're going to need some privacy here. He's gone all Tony Soprano a full six months before The Sopranos started to air. We get a quick flashback from when Ardiff was cornered, and we see a little more of one of the gang members' faces, before we cut back to the room and Leo ordering Ray out. But Ray protests and manages to get between Leo and Miguel. Leo hits the table a couple of times with a nightstick, or a baton, or a club, or whatever it's called in your part of the world, and throws it across the room in anger before leaving. Miguel looks tearful as he says that Leo deserves what he's going through, and this is the second time we've seen Miguel resort to this childlike, innocent demeanour, where he's been faced with somebody that he's scared of. The last time we saw it was when he met with his grandfather, Ricardo, and got slapped across the face. It also shows the usually by-the-book and level-headed Leo as having a breaking point. We cut to a corridor, which looks like it could be deep underground as it is covered with piping above and Leo is talking with a guard who is looking through the phone records. Leo is trying to trace Miguel's call, but the guard tells him, You know as well as I do, we monitor prisoners' calls randomly. We didn't catch that particular one. Now, I get that it's probably just a plot device to keep this story going, but what is the point of randomly monitoring calls? No wonder a riot was able to be plotted, and it makes you wonder what else has gone amiss from a lack of call screening. It makes the prison staff look like a right bunch of idiots. If you can monitor calls in the first place, why are you not doing that all the time? It's not like the prison has a limited number of tokens they can use to listen in on calls and they must use them wisely. I don't know, maybe I'm overthinking it, but it just seems daft that, especially after a riot occurred and an outside body had to be brought in to investigate that, you'd think they would have put measures into place to stop it from maybe happening again. Anyway, now that I've got that off my chest, Leo is walking through the kitchen and he's approached by Peter Chavetta and Chucky Pancamo. Leo. I'm sorry to hear about your daughter. Does everybody know? Pretty much, yeah. Look, I can uh, persuade Alvarez to give up the name of the prick who did this. No thanks. Why not? Hey, why not? Why not? First, I don't want to owe you any more favors. Second, and I know you want to understand this, but it's not right. Right, wrong, right, wrong. It is such a fine line between. Not me. So that's another reference that we've had of Leo owing a favour to the Shabettas. We saw him repay his favour last time when he gave Peter control of the kitchen, but I'm racking my brain trying to think if we were actually told why he owed a favour in the first place, and I don't think we did, but I could be wrong on that. Augustus narrates about how the last thousand years have also seen a number of bad men make an impact as well as the good, and he lists Ivan the Terrible, Jack the Ripper, and Adolf Hitler. Three very bad men indeed, and to put them in a little league table, you've got Jack the Ripper at the foot of the table with five confirmed kills, but suspected to be as high as 11 or possibly more. Ivan the Terrible holds second spot with approximately 60,000 deaths occurring under his rule, although he only admitted to a mere 3,750, while way out in the lead is Adolf Hitler, who of course was responsible for instigating World War II, which resulted in the deaths of approximately 73 million people over a six-year period. So safe to say we have a clear winner out of those lot. While Augustus 
is describing these evil fucks, we get a lingering shot of Adebisi before we cut away, no doubt foreshadowing something horrible to come from him at some point. We get a shot of Leah visiting his daughter in hospital, and she is beaten up badly and relying on an oxygen tank. She is awake, but clearly in a bad way, as Leah pulls up a chair and holds his daughter's hand before we cut back to M-City, seeing the lights go out for the night, and we get a number of shots inmates settling down, as Kenny is lying in his bed, Pancamo is having a smoke, Miguel's having a wank, and Saeed is saying prayers. These shots of the inmates all use a dissolve transition between them, and while we're supposed to be seeing them all in their respective pods, look in the background and you'll see that the shadows on the wall don't move, meaning that all of these shots are in the same pod from the same angle, and the actors were just switched around, indicative that the show was still being made on a pretty tight budget. We do, however, move to a different pod where Ribido is sleeping, but he's deserved by a scraping sound. He looks around and sees Booz Malice over in the corner of the pod, and we get his crime flashback where he's committing grand theft larceny, which is another thing I've heard of but never truly understood what it means. It's basically stealing someone's property. And in this case, we see the mole robbing a bank and escaping through an underground tunnel. In New York State, there are several different degrees of larceny depending on the value of the property stolen, and sentences range from 1 to 12 years. This is also one of the more humorous flashbacks that we see. The tunnel looks like something from The Great Escape, and Bruce Malice is arrested as soon as he pops his head out of the other end. He just needed Richard Attenborough and James Coburn to come out after him. He is also charged with breaking and entering and serving a sentence of 10 years up for parole in four. We met Bruce Malice briefly last episode, and he is played by Tom Mardrosian. Born 14th of December 1947 in Buffalo, New York, and of Armenian-American descent, Madrosian first became interested in acting while serving in the US Army while stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. As part of a Special Forces troop, Madrosian would travel around Army service clubs performing acting works such as Ibsen and Shakespeare, and after completing his service in the Army, he attended the Studio Arena Theatre School, now known as Shea's 710 Theatre, in Buffalo, New York. His first TV acting credit came in 1980, when he played a bus driver in Seizure, the story of Kathy Morris. Other small roles on TV include appearances on Miami Vice, The Equalizer, LA Law and Nurses, while film credits include appearances in Tootsie, Trading Places, Presumed Innocent and Don Juan DeMarco, before he landed his first major recurring role here on Oz. Ribido asks Bruce Malice what he's doing, and Bruce Malice tells him that he's digging his way out, just like he said he would. Ribido says, you can't, it's impossible before then asking how long it's going to take. The short pause there was fantastic. Buzmala says that he isn't sure, but he's got four years till his parole, so he may as well give it a go. Ribido asks, are you really going to dig for four years, with Buzmala saying only if he has to, and seeing as he seems to be digging with a mattress spring, chances are it's going to take him that long. Ribido warns that a guard is coming, and Buzmalis hops back into his bed, thanking Ribido in the process. Ribido says don't mention it, and straight away you get a feeling that the both of them have bonded well since being paired up. And I feel quite happy for Ribido, because there is no one else his sort of age in M-City. He's very much an old lion amongst the pride of youngsters, so it's good that he has someone he can hang out with. Meanwhile, over in Augustus and Beecher's pod, there's something different in the air, and Beecher seems to have learnt another nursery rhyme as we close out Act 1. Oh, fuck! What? Beecher! What? You farted! I didn't pee fucking you! I didn't fart. Damn, man! Five hours till dawn, and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of stink. Make it go fucking war syndrome. You farted. Oh, me? Yeah, you're saying I farted to cover your own tracks. No, you're saying I'm covering my tracks to cover yours. Ginger Ginger broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out to give him a clout, and landed on his back. Fuck you. Light a match. Oh, I swear, Beecher, you need to go see a doctor, man. 
Smelly farts is a sign of something seriously wrong on the inside. I didn't fart. Mm. Oh, fuck, Matt! <laughs> so Act 2 kicks off the following day and Diane heads up to see McManus, who is doing sit-ups in his office. She says that she is about to start her first shift back in M-City, which I pointed out last time seems a bit odd as she was able to spring the trap to expose Schillinger's murder plot, and says that she feels like McManus might like to take her out to dinner to celebrate, which is a bit presumptuous of her. He says that he can't, and Diane asks him if he has a date in a kind of sarcastic way, and McManus says, actually, yes I do, and then she looks a little dejected. Maybe if you'd waited to be offered Diane before trying to score a free meal. McManus tells her welcome back, and Diane leaves the office as he goes back to his sit-ups. Back in M-City, and Poet is performing a piece about being in a boxing match. He's also had some snazzy sideburns shaved in since the last episode. They looked really cool. Diane arrives back, and she's getting catcalls and comments from some of the inmates as she makes her way up to the control deck before taking a seat and closing her eyes, almost like she's instantly regretting coming back, perhaps still dealing with issues relating to the riot, or perhaps trying to work out what she's going to do for dinner now that she has to pay for it. Cut to the classroom where we see Kenny and Kashin. He tells Kenny to take a look at a sports magazine that features an article on Tiger Woods. At the time of broadcast, Woods was the big rising star in the sports world, coming off the back of winning the Masters the previous year, the first of his 14 major tournament wins. He asks Kenny if he has read the part about Woods' parents and points it out in the magazine. As other inmates enter the classroom, Kenny starts to read the article, and while he still needs help on certain words, which Kashin does help him with, he does a pretty good job considering last week McManus was teaching him how to read the letter A. Timmy Kirk pipes up trying to provoke a reaction out of Kenny, but Kenny doesn't take the bait as Kashin congratulates him and tells him to keep the magazine, Kenny telling him that he appreciates it. This is a stark contrast to where these two men were last time we saw them. And while I doubt they're going to end up being best mates because of this, it shows that Kenny is maturing a little bit by not getting worked up from Timmy's taunts and when he struggles with reading certain words. McManus heads into Kenny's pod to tell him that he's heard from Kashin about how well Kenny did in class, and he gives Kenny another book to read as a reward for putting in some hard work. He gives him Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, first published in 1901 and available on Amazon for only £5 in the UK and just under $7 in the US. It's also quite the leap up from the learning to read book that they started with. McManus asks Kenny if he knows who Booker T. Washington is, and Kenny thinks it's Booker T. Jones, famous for being the frontman of Booker T. and the MGs, which I didn't expect to come out of Kenny at all. McManus corrects him, talking about how Booker T. Washington was one of the most influential African-American leaders of his time. Booker T. Washington was a key proponent of African-American businesses and a founder of the Tuskegee Institute in 1881. In 1895, and at a time when lynching was at an all-time high, Washington achieved national fame when he delivered a speech known as the Atlanta Compromise, which allowed for Southern blacks to work and submit to white political rule, while Southern whites guaranteed that blacks would receive basic education and due process in law. Washington's goal was for the progress of black people through education and entrepreneurship, instead of challenging segregation and the Jim Crow laws in the South. Kenny asks McManus if this was the guy to do with the peanuts, and McManus corrects him again, saying that that was George Washington Carver, who Washington invited to teach at the Tuskegee Institute as the head of its agriculture department, which he did for 47 years, from 1896 until his death in 1943. I mean, bless Kenny, he's trying, and I doubt he's the first person to confuse Booker T. Washington and George Carver, especially as the two men were so closely linked. It also reinforces how poor an education Kenny actually has, as both men will have been taught quite extensively in history at school, particularly in the US. McManus says that Washington's book influenced his life and goes to leave, but before he does, Kenny tells him that he doesn't miss his cleaning mop at all after striking the deal to go to class. 
While all this has been going on, Adebisi has been watching from outside, and he seems to be playing some sort of homemade guitar that he's made from rubber bands and a wooden chair leg. He asks McManus if he asks anything for him in the pod too, but McManus isn't taking any shit and asks if Adebisi has been going to class recently. Adebisi says that he has a full schedule, doing what exactly is anyone's guess, and McManus tells him to come by his office so they can look over Adebisi's records. Adebisi heads into the pod and has something to ask Kenny about McManus. You suck his cock when I'm naive? Fuck out of here. He just bought me some shit to read, man. Read, eh? This? Maybe you can read me a nice bedtime story, huh? That cocksucker doesn't come in here again unless you ask me. How the fuck am I supposed that to stop him from coming in? You're not listening. Come here. Come here. <laughs> He doesn't come in here. Do you understand? Yeah, man. Yeah. See, you're a really smart kid, eh? So while we've seen that Adebisi is very much the leader of his particular group in M-City, this scene emphasises it very well, and the way that he repositions Kenny's hat? Or is that what's known as a do-rag in hip-hop circles? Clue me in, guys, because I'm a metal guy. Jeans and t-shirts is about all I know. But yeah, the way he repositions it, Adebisi is showing his god complex by moulding Kenny in his own image. And Kenny being as young as he is makes him very easy to manipulate and for Adebisi to control. Augustus gives us a little more about Booker T. Washington, saying that even the President of the United States would ask for his advice. Washington advised both Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft during their terms in office, partly due to Washington's acceptance of racial subservience. In the kitchen, Adebisi has been told by one of his cohorts about how Leo handling the kitchen over to Peter Shibeta is messed up. He asks if Adebisi was told why, and Adebisi says that Leo is trying to start a war between himself and the Italians. When asked why Leo would do that, he says that it's because Leo hates the Italians too. Peter and Chucky come over, and Adebisi calls Peter Little Nino, saying that he looks just like his father. Although I don't see the resemblance myself. He tells Peter, you're just like your father, only you're still breathing. Peter asks Adebisi if he's trying to tell him something, and Adebisi tells him that he misses Nino. Chucky breaks things up, telling Adebisi to get back to work, which he does by serving some inmates, including Beecher and Rebido. And this is something that I've mentioned before, but it's about the way the cast are used in the background and what that meant for their filming schedules. The vast majority of the cast were on set every day of filming, and a lot of the time that was simply to be in part of the background. These guys are locked up at the end of the day, and there are only so many places within the prison that they can go. The show didn't tend to do location shooting other than for the crime flashbacks, which I'll come back to later on, so we're constantly in the same few locales every episode. It places you, the viewer, right alongside the inmates. If any of us were ever in prison, you would see the same faces day in, day out, and it builds this little civilization of M-City and the world of Oz. Adebisi heads back to his pod, scaring away the horribly stereotypical gay inmates as he goes, and asks Kenny if he wants any tits but Kenny is concentrating on reading his book. Adebisi asks what Kenny's problem is before they're disturbed by the guards calling for a shakedown, which we haven't had for quite a while. Adebisi hides the drug inside Kenny's book, and both men are escorted out of the pod so that Diane can conduct the search inside, while Armstrong and Menio search both men. We see everyone else getting searched as Diane leaves the pod saying that it's clean, and Armstrong says that both men are clean too, so poor job on his part not finding the drugs in the book. 
Adebisi asks Kenny to give him the book, which Kenny does, seemingly opting for the easy life. Adebisi tells him that it's his book now, and then proceeds to rip pages out. Kenny tells Adebisi to get fucked, but he's quickly pressed against the glass as Adebisi asks Kenny if he is starting to forget who he is with all this book and going to class shit. He tells Kenny not to forget who his friends are, and that if he isn't Adebisi's friend, then he's an enemy. He asks Kenny if he understands, and Kenny falls in line as they both decide to go get high. Cut to Adebisi tearing more pages out of the book and throwing them like confetti from the walkway to the floor below, as McManus goes over to a sleeping Kenny asking him why he isn't in class. Kenny gets in McManus' face asking him what his problem is, but guards are there quickly and he backs down before McManus leads him away to the small library and IT lab for a chat. He asks Kenny why he stopped going to class, and we see that Adebisi is once again looking in from the outside. McManus heads back out to tell Adebisi to buzz off while he's having a conversation, and there's another excellent use of someone in the background as we've got Saeed looking on with a face as if to say, ooh, hey up, some shit's going down. McManus tells Kenny that he's going to have Adebisi transferred back to Genpop, but Kenny tells him not to, otherwise he'll have people coming after him. McManus then offers to move Kenny to a different pod, but Kenny just wants him to leave everything alone and leave him be. McManus tells Kenny that if he doesn't go back to class, he'll have him sweeping the kitchen and the rest of the prison 24-7, and asks him what it's going to be. Kenny eventually agrees to go back to class, as Augustus gives us some facts and figures about the link between the lack of education and prisoners to close out Act 2. I touched on these stats in a previous episode, but it's worth hearing them again here. Also something I found quite interesting was that in the class they are learning about W.E.B. Dubois, who I mentioned in another previous episode as Saeed was reading a book of his, and who was opposed to Booker T. Washington's politicking in the 1900s. Mr. Booker T. Washington writes in his book, I have great faith in the power and influence of facts. It is seldom that anything is permanently gained by holding back facts. You want some facts? The U.S. Department of Justice reports that the typical prisoner in America is an undereducated young male minority, but you could have guessed that. If that undereducated young male minority receives his GED in prison, he is far less likely to come back. W.E.B. Dubois. Let's have, uh, Kenny. If that same kid manages to go to college while he's inside, he'll almost definitely never see a prison cell again. Just pick any page you want. Last year, one state, California, spent more money on its penal system than it did on higher education. These are the facts and figures. You ain't got to be that smart to add them up. Act 3 gets underway in the cafeteria, and we see Beecher, Boosmalis, Ribado, and Augustus ranking the women of the prison. Augustus says that he would fuck Dr. Nathan, and Boosmalis agrees. Beecher asks them what about Diane, and they both seem up for a bit of action with her too. Beecher tells the group that he thinks Sister Pete is sexy. Augustus agrees with that too, he j just seems to have the horn for everybody, but Boosmalis says that's disgusting due to Sister Pete being a nun. We then get a little bit of backstory about Sister Pete not always being a nun, and that she used to be married, but her husband died. Boosmalis asks how the husband died, but Beecher says that he doesn't know, and Augustus says that he heard that the husband died falling off the back of a truck and broke his neck. As Ribado cuts in saying that is true, but that it was no accident, and that he was murdered, and that's why Sister Pete works at the prison. It's a good little scene that adds some character to Sister Pete, but also shows that the others are getting along with one another, and more importantly, sticking together. We then cut to an inmate in solitary confinement who seems agitated and is repeatedly saying Sister Pete's name. Leo is looking in at the inmate through a hatch on the door as Sister Pete arrives, and he asks her if she knows the inmate, who's named William Giles, and Leo says that he thinks William's mind may have snapped. Pete says that she doesn't know him, but they open up part of the cell so that she can talk to him. William continues to talk in a cryptic manner, saying the words sick, broom, and amore, and Pete tries to make sense of it. 
A guard opens up the cell door and Peter enters the cell properly to talk to William. But when she goes to put her hand on his shoulder, William completely flips out and has to be restrained, all the while saying Sister Pete's name over and over again. Cut to Pete's office where she asks Beecher to pull up William's file. While the file is loading, Beecher tells her that the inmates voted her the sexiest. At first she's all, oh, come on, but then asks if he's being serious. You can tell she got a little confidence boost from knowing that. We get William's crime flashback, which sees him smashing a car window and trying to steal it, before a man comes over to try and stop him. They have a struggle before William pushes the man in front of an oncoming truck, which can't stop in time, and runs the man over. As a result, William is convicted of second-degree murder and given a life sentence, eligible for parole in 60 years, meaning that he has been in Oz for 40 years at this point, but it's not known how long he's been locked up in solitary. So William Giles is played here by Austin Pendleton, and in looking up for the show, I forgot that William is in as many episodes as he is. For some reason, I thought this was a one-and-done character. Pendleton was born March 27, 1940 in Warren, Ohio. His father ran his own tool company while his mother was a professional actress. Pendleton graduated from the Yale University School of Drama before pursuing a career in theatre, where he received critical acclaim for his portrayal of Motel in a 1964 production of Fiddler on the Roof, as well as appearing in other plays including The Diary of Anne Frank, Up from Paradise, Educating Rita, and The Last Sweet Days of Isaac for which he won both a Desk Drama Award and an Obie Award. In the 1970s, Pendleton joined the Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago as an actor and a director. Having been nominated for theatre awards for directing in 1976 and 1980, Pendleton would win the 1981 Tony Award for Best Director in the Play category for The Little Foxes, where he directed Elizabeth Taylor in one of the lead roles. In addition to his theatre work, Pendleton forged an extensive career in TV and film, beginning in 1968 with an uncredited role in the film Petulia. In 1972, he was considered for the role of Fredo Corleone in The Godfather, a role which ultimately went to John Cazell. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Pendleton would appear on popular TV series including Miami Vice, The Equalizer, 21 Jump Street, as well as directing the TV movie Say Goodnight Gracie in 1983 and in the 90s would appear on film in My Cousin Vinny with Joe Pesci, and 1994's Mr. Nanny, featuring an acting masterclass from professional wrestler Hulk Hogan. Pendleton also becomes the fourth member of the Ozcast to appear in an episode of Frasier, having appeared in the 1997 fourth season episode, Three Days of the Condor. In Leo's office, Sister Pete is begging Leo to allow for William to be removed from solitary so that she can commence therapy sessions with him. Leo is not willing to let Giles out of solitary, and we find out that he's been in there because he got into an argument with another inmate over some stolen toothpaste two years ago, so his stay in solitary is relatively recent. Pete says Giles needs her help, but Leo tells her that Giles is dangerous and he isn't going to put her in a dangerous situation. Pete continues to ask, but Leo forcefully tells her no before leaving to go visit his daughter. So we're getting to see both sides of Leo in this episode, which is very different to what we saw in the first series where he came across as a one-dimensional, by-the-book sort of guy. While he is willing to bend the rules when he is involved in something, he isn't prepared to place somebody else needlessly in danger. Pete heads back to Solitary to visit with Giles, but this time she goes alone. Giles is still repeating her name, which by now must be driving the guards absolutely crazy. She opens the viewing hatch and we see Giles has been placed in a straitjacket for his safety. Pete moves away from the cell door as we hear Giles continue to call her name. Augustus addresses us asking whether or not people made lists of great folk at the end of the previous millennium, and whether or not they even knew it was ending, as we see Saeed and the Muslims at prayer in M-City. Frank interrupts them to deliver a package to Saeed and ask him to sign for it, but Saeed tells him that he'll sign for it later. Frank says that he needs to do it now because they're short-staffed in the mailroom because Schillinger is still in the hall. 
Now, you may recall last episode that when Miguel got sent to the hull, I mentioned that it might be awkward if Schillinger was still in there, and we saw Miguel get thrown into the hull, and Schillinger definitely wasn't there. We also saw Miguel get released from the hull on the orders of Leo. Now we're being told that Schillinger is still in the hull, which means one of two things. Either A, there is more than one hull that the inmates can get sent to, or B, there is just one hull and Schillinger was still in there, but was hiding in the corner out of shot the whole time. I'll leave it up to you to decide which it is. Saeed realises what the package actually is and then signs for it. He opens the box which contains his new book about the riot, which he mentioned to McManus last episode, and he tells him that the book is proof that the truth cannot be silenced. There is another slight error that I noticed here too. If you go back to the scene where McManus escorts Kenny away to the computer room for a talk, you can see Arif holding a couple of copies of the book in his arms, and throughout the rest of the episode you can see other inmates reading it too. It could be a case that Kenny's segment of the show was meant to come later on but got moved to earlier in the episode, or again, it could just be an oversight. I don't want to sound like I'm being harsh on the makers of the show, but this just has a number of little mistakes that got noticed along the way. We go to the library where Ribido notices Saeed reading at one of the desks. The annotated code? You giving up God for the law? God's laws are clear to me. Those are man that are not. I've been studying legal books for the last eight months. Trying to see if God's laws and those of the white man have anything in common. What have you discovered? That these are nothing but words on a page. The annotated code exists solely to be circumvented. Without law, we have anarchy. <laughs> you should read your morning paper, old man. We have anarchy anyway. I would have thought after the riot, you would have learned. You can't overthrow the system. Oh, I learned. And I have no interest in seeing more men die. No. I intend to use the tools that were used against me. I intend to make the law devour itself. Arif and Augustus are sat together watching the news, and we get a report explaining that Judge Richard Kibler has been sent to prison for accepting bribes. Augustus tells Arif that Kibler was the judge for his trial, and he says that if he knew he was taking bribes, he'd have ponied up some dough himself. Arif says that Augustus should talk to Saeed, and they all meet up later in the computer room. Saeed asks Augustus if he was ever approached by Kibler or anybody else about taking bribes, but Augustus says that he was never told anything to which Saeed asks whether or not his lawyer was ever approached. Augustus once again says that if they were, then he didn't know about it. Saeed says that is a good thing, and he thinks that they might have a case on the basis that Augustus was denied his right to a fair trial by an impartial judge, more commonly referred to as the Sixth Amendment in the US. Augustus asks him if that means that they might be able to go to court and get the verdict overturned, Saeed telling him that he has a real shot at going free. All of this is a bit bizarre to me. I could understand if it was about Augustus having his sentence changed, the lack of a bribe possibly meaning that the judge handed down a stricter sentence, and that is brought up in the next scene. But he will have still been found guilty by a jury, so I don't see how his sentence could be quashed and how he would go free straight away. They're not claiming that Augustus didn't commit his crime, they're saying that he wasn't given a fair trial, but if anything I would have thought that would lead to a retrial for Augustus, rather than his conviction being overturned. Saeed and Augustus go to meet with Leo and McManus, and they seem as confused as I do. As I just mentioned, they're claiming that the judge was lenient to those who did offer bribes compared to those who didn't, yet at no point are they claiming that Augustus is innocent, so I don't see how him going free could be an option. 
Saeed says that in order for them to present their case, they're going to need time for visitations and to talk to Augustus' lawyer, as well as anybody else who offered bribes and their lawyers. So he wants to visit with a hell of a lot of people. Mamanus points out that Augustus has remained quiet, but he says that he'd be an idiot not to keep his mouth shut when Saeed is doing the talking. They meet with Augustus' lawyer, Clifford Sprague, and straight away Augustus is ripping into this poor guy. You lying. I, I, Clifford, I sat next to you through all those hearings, all those days of the trial. I got so I could tell when you was lying. You get that little twitch. I do? That's probably why you're such a shit lawyer. Augustus, please. Insults do us no good at all. Sure as hell make me feel better. Look, I did the best I could for you. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm saying you shit. Can we get back to the point, please? <clears throat> now, you knew others were giving bribes. I heard stuff in the courthouse hallways, that's all. Then why don't you jump, you motherfucker? Call me naive. I thought I'd get a not guilty based on the strength of the case. Mr. Sprague, if you knew what was going on, why do you not go to the State Judicial Commission? Come on, I go to the State Commission and nothing happens. Except the next time I'm pleading a case in front of Kibler, he cuts off my balls. Saeed is making some phone calls and says that they have a meeting the following day with Marilyn Crenshaw, who is the assistant district attorney who prosecuted Judge Kibler. But he's having less luck getting hold of the lawyers who offered bribes to return his calls, and he's trying to get in touch with others. He tells Augustus he's not expecting to hear a response from them, but says that good things don't come easy before the count is called and they head back to their pods. Cut to the next day and the guys have their meeting with Marilyn Crenshaw, played by Melina Kanakaridis, who with a surname like that I'm guessing is of Greek descent. Not a stranger to US TV screens, Melina had runs on shows such as Due South, NYPD Blue and Leaving LA before her appearance here on Oz. Saeed asks her if she ever heard Augustus' name mentioned when she was gathering evidence for Kibler's trial, but she says that she didn't, nor did she notice any particular pattern pertaining to any other cases, and Saeed mentions about whether or not skin tone was a factor in any of the convictions. Crenshaw tells him that he isn't going to be able to turn the meeting into something racial, Saeed claiming that that is not his intention, and Crenshaw channels her in a McManus shouting bullshit at him, and says that the only similarities to the case were that they were male and guilty. They go back and forth, all the while Augustus keeps looking at each of them as they speak, and Crenshaw tells Saeed the only place he is a lawyer is in his own head. She tells Saeed that he is the one that she isn't going to help, not Augustus, and as she leaves she tells Augustus to get a real lawyer if he wants to win this case. Augustus asks Saeed if they know each other, saying that they seemed awfully familiar, and Saeed reveals that he and Crenshaw were engaged before he found Allah, which gives us a little bit of backstory on Saeed as well. We know that he is a Muslim convert, but there haven't been many references to his life as Jefferson Truman before he found religion at this point. Saeed goes to ask McManus to allow him to receive calls as well as being able to make them, to which McManus sarcastically says about running a switchboard through his pod, and reminds Saeed that he is in a maximum security prison saying that if he says yes to him, then what's to stop the next person coming for the same? As opposed to, no fucking way, you were seconds away from starting a riot not too long ago. Saeed tries to claim that these are special circumstances, but Mamanis isn't having any of it and tells him that inside Oz, Saeed is nobody special, a callback to what he told him about his celebrity status when the two first met, and that he doesn't deserve more than the next person. It was also strange hearing the words inside Oz not coming out of my mouth for once. Saeed asks McManus if he is acting like this because he didn't like what Saeed wrote about him in his book. Nice of him to presume that McManus had read it, but at least he gave him a free copy. 
Romanus tells him that it's because Saeed always asks for help but is never willing to do anything in return. Saeed questions why they have to negotiate and that doing what's right should be enough, but Romanus doesn't answer, instead opting to take a big bite out of a sandwich. I'd be interested to know whose side you're on in this situation. Me, personally, I'm totally with McManus. Why should he be bending over backwards to give Saeed what he wants and get nothing back? Considering everything that's occurred between them, it doesn't seem to be a case of McManus is holding a grudge, more that he isn't going to be taken advantage of as he continues to look out for what is best for the operation of MC. Syed heads down the stairs from McManus' office where Augustus is waiting. Presumably Augustus hasn't put his note into the suggestion box yet. And both look a little despondent before Augustus reminds Syed about nothing good coming easy, before he then gives a passionate speech about what he's looking for from all of this as we close Act 3. No go, huh? What was that you were saying about nothing good coming easy? <sighs> Life in prison. That's some tough shit to wrap your mind around. You know what I'm saying? But I did like everybody else in this come hole. I settled in. I settled down. But, th but then, when you said the word free to me, I... Yo, something inside me stirred, you know? Freedom. I want my freedom. And you shall have it, my brother. I swear to you, by Almighty God and everything that I hold holy, you will go free. Act 4 gets underway with Ryan in Gloria's office having a nosy through somebody's file before Gloria enters and they have a sit down to discuss Ryan's test results. Ryan tells her not to dance around and to give it to him straight, which she does telling him that he has a stage 2 breast carcinoma, meaning that the cancer is growing but is still contained within the breast tissue or the nearby lymph nodes. Gloria explains it means that they have caught the cancer quite early and that Ryan's chances of survival are good, but she's very careful not to say that Ryan will survive, and she also explains about the next step being surgery. The surgery that Ryan is being put forward for is for either a lumpectomy, sometimes known as breast conserving surgery, or BCS, in which the cancerous part of the breast tissue is removed, or a mastectomy, which is where the entire breast is removed. As she is explaining all of this to Ryan, he's trying to be as laid back as he possibly can, but you can tell that he's nervous about the whole thing, which is completely understandable considering the potentially life-changing news he's had. She asks if he has any questions, and Ryan shifts topics and mentions about Gloria being married, and we found out that Ryan is married too, saying that she would really like his wife and describes her as a real pisser. Not really sure what he means by that, but I like the term for some reason. We get a cut to Ryan in the visiting room with his wife Shannon, played by Anika Peterson. She asks if the doctor knows what he's talking about, Ryan corrects her saying it's a she-doctor, and Shannon is all, give me the name of that bitch, I'll talk to her, and the pair of them have a little bit of a shouting match. You can understand Shannon being on edge a bit because she clearly cares for her husband, but straight away we get a feeling for what type of relationship the two of them have as everything escalates very quickly and seemingly from very little. The scene cuts between Ryan and Gloria in the infirmary office and Ryan and Shannon in the visiting room, and does a good job of showing both sides of Ryan's situation as he tries to be himself around his wife while dropping his guard a little while he's with Gloria. Ryan talks about how he and Shannon were childhood sweethearts and how they'd fuck for days and to their friend's surprise, the couple would never get pregnant, before revealing that Shannon was unable to have children, and casually saying, but I married her anyways because I knew she felt like shit. Not because he loved her or anything, obviously. And he also tells Gloria about how he cheated on his wife a lot and says that he doesn't want to die. 
perhaps feeling that he is suffering some sort of karma for cheating on Shannon. He begins to cry with Gloria and we see him share a kiss with Shannon as the scene closes on Gloria comforting Ryan with a hug. We go to a staff meeting, complete with coffee and donuts, and Gloria is explaining that she has scheduled Ryan to have a mastectomy at Benchley Memorial, turning up for the second time in the series, and says she'll be assisting the doctor who she claims is the top breast cancer surgeon in the state. Leo, however, seems concerned about how much all of this is going to cost, and asks if their insurance will cover it. To which Gloria says no, and mentions that the claims adjuster, who is someone that assesses the amount of compensation that should be paid after a claim has been made on an insurance policy, is insisting that Ryan have a lumpectomy instead. Mamanus asks if it can remove the lump and save money, then why do a mastectomy in the first place? To which Gloria mentions that lumpectomies are not always effective, and often have to be followed up with either radiation therapy or chemotherapy. Diane gets herself in on the conversation, asking how much it's all going to cost. And Gloria says that to pay for the surgeon and the staff and the equipment, it'll cost $18,000. Sister Pete and Ray seem surprised, while Diane asks how much it would be to do a lumpectomy instead. Gloria tells her that it'll be about half as much, and Diane says we'll give him the lumpectomy. Fuck off, Diane. You're not a doctor, and you don't get to make those kind of calls. Why is she even there? She always seems to be at these staff meetings as some sort of rep for the guards, but she doesn't actually seem to contribute anything. Ray tries to make the point that a patient should be able to choose their own medical procedure before Diane pipes up again with, no, not at these prices, not if he's a con. And in that moment, I completely turned on Diane as a character. Gloria tries to explain that Ryan is going through all sorts of shit being a man and having breast cancer, and that he needs support as much as he does to surgery. While Diane continues to make a case for saving money, saying, we can do a lot with that 18 grand. Before saying that she doesn't mean to sound cold, which automatically means she's going to sound cold, and says that whether Ryan lives another two months or 20 years means dick to her. Seriously, what a heartless bitch. McManus tells Leo that the ball is in his court, and rather than discuss the matter further, he says to do the lumpectomy and moves the meeting along as Gloria looks downhearted. So yeah, I have completely turned on Diane based on this scene. While we've seen somewhat of a dehumanisation process affect some of the inmates, to see this complete lack of empathy from Diane just left a real sour taste. Especially when you've got McManus doing the opposite with how he's trying to help Kenny. I'm sure her training will have included the point about not forming bonds with inmates, but that doesn't mean you just cease acting like a human being. Anyway, now that I've got that rant over with, we go back to seeing Ryan and Shannon in the visiting room. Shannon asks if Ryan dies, what are they going to do about his brother? And we then move to another part of the prison where we meet Ryan's brother Cyril, played by Dean Winter's real-life brother, Scott William Winters. Not that you needed to be told that, you just have to look at them and you can see the family resemblance. Some people think that Dean and Scott are twins, such is the strong resemblance, but Dean is just over a year older than Scott. Ryan is all set to be transferred to the hospital in his orange jumpsuit and wearing handcuffs, but he still comes over and gives Cyril a hug. He asks Cyril why he feels tense, to which Cyril whispers that it's due to the gates and the guards and that Oz is a scary place. You can tell straight away from how Cyril speaks that the character is presented as having some sort of cognitive or intellectual disability. We do find out about that in a future episode, and I will go into that in more detail as well as introducing Scott William Winters when we get to that. Cyril asks Ryan why he lives at Oz and when Ryan is coming home, which is so sweet and instantly makes you warm to Cyril. Ryan tells him that he won't be home for a while yet, and he needs an operation because he is sick. It's the most human that we've seen Ryan be up to this point. Cyril raises his voice, telling him no operations, and mentions that their mother died during an operation. But Ryan cups his hands around Cyril's face to calm him down, saying that he'll be fine, but that if he isn't, for whatever reason, that Shannon is going to have to live her own life, and that if she asks Cyril to move out of the house, then Cyril will have to go to live with other people, ones that are more like Cyril. 
He says that he doesn't want Cyril to cry and give Shannon a hard time, because Cyril needs to be a man and step up, and the scene closes with a gate being shut, and we cut to seeing Ryan in a bus on his way to the hospital. So this is the first time that we've actually gone outside of the prison grounds as part of the main narrative. Obviously, we see outside during the various crime flashbacks, and we saw Ray and Miguel go to the hospital in series one when Miguel's baby was being born, but we didn't see outside. The only other times we've seen outside of the walls of Oz is from news reports at the prison gates, Jefferson Keane waving to Mavis, and when Sister Pete was outside protesting the death penalty. But we haven't actually gone outside on location. From a production point of view, it makes sense due to being set and filmed in New York. The cost for shooting on location in New York State would have blown the show's budget in a very short space of time. As I mentioned earlier, being a prison drama, it also makes sense that we don't see locations very often due to the main characters being incarcerated. But up to this point, we've never seen scenes or side plots of the staff going about their lives on the outside. We keep hearing about McManus having these dates, and we never see any of them. We only ever see the prison side of life. Ryan arrives at the hospital, and as he steps off the bus, he looks up to the sky and seems to make being on the outside last as long as he can, even if it's just for a few moments, before we cut inside the hospital where Shannon is frantically trying to find Gloria. Yeah, you Dr. Nathan? No, no, I'm Dr. Nathan. Look, I know he's just a criminal to you, but he's my fucking husband, understand? Now I asked around, and this operation is the cheapest thing that you can do. His life ain't cheap. You make sure that Ryan's okay. You better make sure. We get a quick montage of Ryan's time on the show so far, including shots from his crime flashback and talking with Nina as he is prepared for the surgery. Gloria comes over and tells him that they're about to get started, as Ryan tells her that he's been thinking about how his life is in the hands of a stranger, but he feels better knowing that Gloria is around. He calls her his guardian angel and says that he can't figure out why she cares, but he's glad that she does, and that he owes her big time. She squeezes his hand in support as Ryan has a mask placed over his mouth, and the surgery gets underway to close out Ryan's story for this episode. As Augustus narrates about how doctors' names should be on the list of great people, their names tend to fill us with dread, as we go back to M-City and we see Schellinger officially released from the hull. So as far as I can tell, the hull is now empty. McManus tells him that he's been transferred out of M-City to Unit B, which is part of Genpop, and Leo informs him that he's been charged with conspiracy to commit murder, and a hearing will be heard in two weeks. He asks if Schillinger wants a public defender, but Schillinger jokes about having a bleeding heart plead his case, before saying that he'll get his own lawyer. McManus telling him that he better trade up from the last one, as we cut to Schillinger meeting with his lawyer, and it all sounds like it's going very well. Cocksucker. You ask my advice, I give you my advice. You call me a fucking cocksucker. I don't want your advice. I want you to make this conspiracy to commit murder charge disappear. I'm a lawyer, not the amazing Kreskin. Look, the state's case is firm. The guard you bribed is testifying against you and call me crazy. I think that a, a law officer has more credibility than you. How much time am I looking at? Ten more years. All right, so I'll plead out. I'm not even sure the DA would be willing to make a deal. What about Whittlesey? I saw her murder Ross. I've informed the authorities and demanded an investigation, but frankly, that horse won't hunt. What about my sons? Any word on them? Uh, nope, but you know, they'll turn up. Yeah, floating in a fucking river. They're out there somewhere, they're doing crystal meth, for Christ's sakes. Will you please? 
find my boys? You got it. Schillinger's lawyer there, played by Dylan Baker, you'll recognise him from a whole bunch of stuff over the years, but from when this episode aired, he was probably most known for his run on Murder One, as well as the award-winning movie Happiness, where he starred alongside Philip Seymour Hoffman. His character here also has that New York Jew twang to his accent, which is a great example of Schillinger being a massive hypocrite and somewhat of a plastic Aryan, using a Jewish lawyer to fight his battle for him. I really liked when the lawyer was leaving and he's all, hey, you got it, and giving Schellinger the thumbs up. It's almost like a prototype to the Saul Goodman character from Breaking Bad. This scene also brought back the filming method of showing one character delivering the dialogue while the other character's reaction is in the reflection of the glass. I really like that technique. We go down to the mail room, which we saw briefly in series one, but I think we see a lot more of it going forward. Feature has a package to deliver and he notices Schellinger working. He tries to provoke Schillinger by mentioning that he must be mad at him for ruining his parole hearing, but Schillinger is doing his best to ignore the taunting. Beecher says that he manipulated Schillinger, calling him a dumbass white trash Neanderthal, and that you get to know a lot about a man when he's fucking you in the ass, Which is Schillinger's breaking point, and obviously a huge secret that he keeps from everyone, because that's something that the Aryan Brotherhood is completely against. He throws an electric fan at Beecher, but he ducks out of the way, saying, Getting slow there, sweet pea. Getting a little soft and he gives a little version of what I like to call the Scott Hall, ooh, scary fingers. Beecher leaves the mailroom having a maniacal chuckle to himself before we see Schillinger back in his cell in Genpop reading, although we can't tell if his book is Mein Kampf or not. He's approached by three black inmates who ask if it's right that he used to run the Aryan Brotherhood, and if he let Beecher shit in his face. Schillinger tries to leave, but he is attacked by the men who put a beating on him in his cell. We cut to the next day in the kitchen where Schillinger, clutching his ribs and sporting some facial bruising, meets up with Mac and says that the Brotherhood is falling apart and that when he run the Brotherhood, they were a feared gang. That reference to Schillinger having used to lead the group seems to go by unexplained as he was still the leader of the group before he went to the hall. We see that he still interacts with the other inmates of the gang even though Schillinger himself has been transferred back to Genpop, so he could still be giving orders and who else is there that could lead the Brotherhood at this point? They're a bit of a non-entity, which Schillinger even references when he says that the gays look tougher than they do. Which in 2019 would look horribly dated if that was being said by anybody else. But because it's Schillinger, a shit-for-brains neo-Nazi, him having that outlook wouldn't be out of the ordinary. He tells Mac that they need to take the power back and they can rule Oz. They decide that the best way to get everybody's attention is to commit a fresh murder, which Schillinger calls a roadkill in order to show that they're back in the game. Mac asks who's going to be the chosen one, and Schillinger says that it has to be the meanest motherfucking mutt we can find. And they look down at the end of the table, a very long table, as we go past quite a number of other inmates, before we see Alexander Vogel, who does indeed look like a mean motherfucker. Vogel is played by Brian Smy, and we get a look back at his crime flashback, in which he brutally murders an elderly couple on the street, stabbing a woman once and a man twelve times and he is charged with two counts of second-degree murder and one count of theft, serving a 50-year sentence up for parole in 30. Brian Smy has actually appeared on Oz before, but this is his first appearance as Alexander Vogel. He was credited for appearing in the Series 1 finale, A Game of Checkers, playing the part of White Punk number 2, so you'd be forgiven for not recognising him here. Smy has a number of other small acting roles, usually limited to background parts such as Guard Number 1 or Con Ed Worker Number 2, but he is more recognised in the industry for his role as a stunt coordinator, and owns his own stunt company, Never Quit Stunts, with his wife Stephanie. 
Prior to working on Oz, Smy performed stunt work on movies such as Candy Store Conspiracy, Distant Justice and New York Cop, as well as more recognisable titles such as The Next Karate Kid, Natural Born Killers, Money Train, Twelve Monkeys, Donnie Brasco and US Marshals. He also had two stunt credits for Oz prior to this episode in Series 1, having done stunts on Episodes 6 and 7, To Your Health and Plan B. Back from the crime flashback and Leo heads into the gym where he sees that Vogel has been stripped naked, hung upside down, his throat slashed, and has the word Jew carved into his chest. Now that is fucking brutal. Even by today's standards, in a landscape where shows on TV have become more violent and darker in terms of tone and themes covered, you would be hard-pressed to get something like this on TV, certainly not on network TV anyway. But as I mentioned right back at the start of the podcast, this is one of the reasons why the show ended up on HBO in the first place. Because of the way that HBO does business, the show was given more of a free reign to do what it wanted to do, so long as there was good story there. Just wanted to say as well, you can tell something bad is coming before the camera even moves across to Vogel, purely because of the face that Leo pulls. It's a great... Oh, for fuck's sake, moment. Leo interviews Schillinger about the murder, saying that if the Brotherhood wasn't involved, then why was Jew carved on Vogel's chest? Schillinger plays dumb and then says that maybe one of the other gangs is trying to set them up, and that the Brotherhood aren't the only gang that hate the Jews, before saying, your people do too, in a put-on southern accent. I love the little face that he pulled as well when he said about another gang setting him up. JK has some amazing facial expressions. Leo says that he knows that Schillinger is involved, but Schillinger tells him to prove it before he is sent back to his cell. And as he leaves, he starts to sing the opening to Dixieland, seemingly in another attempt to get under Leo's skin. Dixie, a nickname used for the southern United States, particularly those that composed the Confederacy, was cemented into American vernacular following the popularity of the Dixieland song during the American Civil War, after it was used in minstrel shows in the 1850s, and became somewhat of an unofficial national anthem for the Confederacy during the war. While a number of people have claimed credit to writing the song, it's thought to have been composed by Daniel Decatur Emmett, and was a favourite of President Abraham Lincoln, which was played at political rallies and at the announcement of the surrender of General Robert E. Lee at the Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, 1865. The earliest known recording of the song comes from 1916 and was performed by Billy Murray and Ada Jones. The song has been referenced numerous times in pop culture, from being a scene-setting piece of music during Foghorn Leghorn cartoons starting in 1946, to being the musical car horn of the Dukes of Hazard on TV in the late 1970s and in the mid-1980s. In more recent times, it has been performed by Bob Dylan for the soundtrack to Masked and Anonymous in 2003, by English comedian John Bishop as part of his Elvis Has Left the Building show, and has been performed on Netflix's House of Cards. Next day, in the cafeteria, Miguel comes up to Schillinger and Mac and tells them, Nice job on Vogel, which seemed a bit odd. Presumably Miguel had some sort of running with Vogel off screen, but by the look of Vogel, he could have clashed with a number of people. Schillinger says, everyone knows we did it and that's what matters. Matt questions what's next as Schillinger turns around to look at Beecher, who is a few places back in the lunch line. He's looking a little less cocky than he did before and has his arms folded, but he's not backing down and is still staring a hole through Schillinger. Mac asks if we're going to kill Beecher. Schillinger says yes, but first we make him suffer, and says that that will be long and hard. We fade to black before Augustus comes back with an epilogue narrating maybe the greatest man of the millennium was a woman, listing Princess Diana and Mother Teresa, both of whom had passed away within the same week the previous year, as well as Madame Curie and Marilyn Monroe, as we hear a news report and see the arrival of Shirley Bellinger, who has been convicted of murder and is heading towards to be executed, the first woman to be executed in the state since 1841. 
Bellinger is played by Catherine Irby, but I will introduce her properly on the podcast in a future episode. Leo oversees Bellinger being placed in her cell, which she creepily describes as being comfy, as Augustus asks us to imagine being remembered for a thousand years as we close out the episode. Shirley Bellinger, who was convicted for the murder of her four-year-old daughter, was sentenced to death today, the first woman in this state to be executed since 1841. She will receive a lethal injection next month at Oswald State Penitentiary. Bellinger's lawyer has already filed an appeal in federal court and will hold a press conference tomorrow. Speaking from the Capitol, Governor Devlin said he supports the sentence and would not consider a stay of execution if petitioned. How comfy. Yeah. Imagine being remembered for a thousand years. The things you did when you was alive, reaching across time and touching the lives of people not yet born. <laughs> that's some dream. That's why people write books, start religions, find cures, run for president. But me, I don't want to be a great man. I don't care if I'm remembered for the next thousand years. All I ask is if we pass on the street, notice me. So that was Series 2, Episode 3, Great Men. Plenty happening once again, some stories getting advanced along nicely, and also some new plot threads being introduced as well. We see a more intense, rougher side to Leo when he's trying to get information out of Miguel, giving him some extra layers to his character. Ryan and Gloria's relationship continues to expand, and we get to see Ryan's caring side when he gets a visit from his brother Cyril. Saeed kind of uses Augustus for selfish reasons, trying to boost his own profile, and we get to see some of the darker aspects of Adebisi and his hold over Kenny. Beecher and Schillinger's feud continues to simmer, and Schillinger alludes to it continuing even longer too. And that story arc is the one that I am currently invested in the most, I reckon. We've come in with Beecher at the start of the show, and we've gone along for the ride with him so far, and seen him at his absolute lowest ebb. And while we've seen somewhat of a reversal between himself and Schillinger, you do get the feeling that the momentum can swing at any moment, and that's what's keeping me interested. That's not to say that I have no investment in any of the other characters or plots, but the Beecher-Schillinger arc is the centrepiece of the whole show and is the story that I look forward to most each episode. And while we met some new faces, such as William Giles, Cyril O'Reilly and Shannon O'Reilly, we lost someone along the way too, as we got our first actual death for a couple of episodes. That being Alexander Vogel, played by Brian Smy. As I mentioned earlier, Smy is more recognised in the TV and film industry for his stunt work, and following his appearance in this episode became one of the most sought-after stunt coordinators in the business. Smy's stunts can be seen in a wide range of Hollywood movies, of which there are far too many to list here, but to name just a few they include Spider-Man 2 and 3, The Departed, the Will Smith movies I Am Legend and Hancock, The Dark Knight Rises, and The Bourne Ultimatum. While on TV he's conducted stunt work for shows such as The Sopranos, Homeland, The Tick, Gotham, Narcos, Madam Secretary, and The Blacklist. While this was Smy's second credited appearance on the show, we do have others joining the Inside Oz One and Done Club, those being Dylan Baker as Schillinger's defence attorney, Melina Kanakaridis as Marilyn Crenshaw, and Matt Norths, who played Augustus's lawyer Clifford Sprague. As I mentioned earlier, Dylan Baker has appeared in numerous movies over the years in supporting roles, including the films Requiem for a Dream, Along Came a Spider, Road to Perdition, as well as much like Brian Smy, appearing in both Spider-Man 2 and 3, playing the part of Dr. Kurt Connors. 
Baker has also appeared on TV in shows such as The Book of Daniel, Burn Notice, Damages, The Good Wife, Homeland, and The Americans. He also produced, directed, and appeared in the 2014 drama 23 Blast. Melina Kanakaridis followed up her Oz appearance by starring in all 96 episodes of NBC's Providence, where she played the part of Dr. Sidney Hansen. She later joined the spin-off of the CSI franchise, where she appeared in 140 episodes of CSI New York on CBS, playing the part of Stella Bonacera and starring alongside Golden Globe and Emmy Award winner and Tom Hanks' best mate, Gary Sinise. In recent years, she has appeared in The Resident for the Fox Network and is to appear in the Netflix anime series Gods and Heroes, scheduled to be released in 2020. Jeffrey North, who I just called Matt for some reason a moment ago, I don't know why, continued to act, appearing in small roles in the early noughties before moving behind the camera to direct and produce the short film Baby Steps, as well as working as a writer and story editor on ABC's Brothers and Sisters. From 2014, he worked on ABC's Nashville as part of the show's third season, as well as working at various points as writer, producer, co-producer, executive story editor, and supervising producer, through to the show's conclusion in 2018. Bob Balaban, who directed the episode, continues to act, produce, and direct. In 1999, he made a guest appearance in the fifth series of Friends, playing Frank Buffet Sr., the long-lost father of Lisa Kudrow's character Phoebe, and in 2000 made a guest appearance on The West Wing for NBC. Bob appeared in Oscar-winning movies Gosford Park in 2001, on which he was a producer and partial writer alongside Julian Fellows, and 2005's Capote, playing the part of William Shawn. In recent years, Bob has also appeared in a number of Wes Anderson movies, playing parts in Moonrise Kingdom, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs, and is set to appear in the director's next feature, The French Dispatch, set for release in 2020. Bob appeared in all ten episodes of the first series of DirecTV's Condor, and at the time of recording is filming The Politician, set to be released by Netflix in September 2019. As well as directing them in this episode of Oz, Bob has also directed Dean Winters in the episode Future Trade for the UPN revival of The Twilight Zone, as well as Edie Falco in four episodes of Showtime's Nurse Jackie, and Ernie Hudson in two episodes of Graves on Epix. In addition to his film and TV work, Bob has also written six children's books, focusing on McGrowl the Bionic Dog, co-authored the books Spielberg, Truefort and Me, An Actor's Diary with Steven Spielberg, and Creature from the Seventh Grade, Sink or Swim, as well as playing the part of Joseph Langrock in the scripted podcast Wolverine The Long Night. My MVP for this episode, and in what is a first for Inside Oz, Tim McManus retains the show MVP title. Despite a minor setback and attempted interference from Adebisi, he is not giving up on Kenny getting a decent education, and he also stood his ground when Saeed was attempting to get some extra perks for his and Augustus's legal challenge. So for those reasons, I am giving him the episode MVP award again. Can he keep the streak alive and go for the hat-trick? We'll find out when we look at the next episode, but before I tell you about that, let me remind you that you can catch up on all previous episodes of the podcast by heading over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castro Podcasts, Overcast and Castbox, as well as all other major podcasting platforms. There you will find the complete Series 1 and both episodes of Series 2 so far. In addition to that, you will find both of the Outside Oz bonus episodes, including the Cool Runnings Watch Along and J.K. Simmons Academy Award-winning Masterclass in Whiplash. I've also recently decided what Outside Oz number 3 is going to be, but I will tell you more about that when we get to it. Leave a 5-star review wherever you can to continue to help the show get more exposure, and if you have any questions or comments, 
comments, drop the show an email at insideozpodcast at gmail.com and you can follow all the news and updates about the show on Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideozpodcast. I have been Neil Thompson and I will catch you next time on Inside Oz where we will be looking back at Series 2, Episode 4, Losing Your Appeal. Where Augustus and Saeed suffer a setback, we get the fallout of Ryan's surgery, and we get the long-awaited debut of a game-changing character. All this and more on Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. Catch you next time, everyone. Prisoner number 98K514. It'll take some time. But don't worry, sooner or later, Beecher will be mine.